welcome to this presentation of Bethel Family Church. We hope you enjoy listening and that it helps you to grow closer to Jesus. I want to share this morning just um, a story that probably the vast majority of you, I think, I don't think it would be too many of you that wouldn't know this story. But I, I really felt the Lord put it on my heart and, and over the last few weeks we've been talking about getting to know God's love. And we've been talking about getting to know how much God loves you and how much God cares for you. And, and some of the things that uh, I, I guess are, are part of our response to that. But we, we couldn't possibly do a series uh, or talk about God's love without this little story that Jesus told um, and, uh, but I want to start with the context because often we kind of, we dive into the story and we kind of ignore the, the little bit that came before it and, and uh, really this story uh, and this little series of three stories that are found in, in Luke 15 and uh, if you've got your Bibles you can open them up to Luke 15 and, and follow along if you can but it begins off Luke 15 verse 1, it says tax collectors, I think I've got it here, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. That was a bit scandalous, wasn't it? Uh, it says, This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such people, even eating with them. <gasps> How dare he! Now, um, one of the things that I love about Jesus and one of the, the, the almost like the things that Jesus was able to do that sometimes I wish that I was able to do as well but I don't seem to be able to, I don't seem to be very good at this one yet but one of the things that Jesus was often able to do was that he knew what people were thinking, didn't he? And there was often times when the disciples, they'd, they'd be like, bzz, 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 what does he mean? What is that, you know, this, this, this and that and the other. And, and Jesus would answer their question that they hadn't quite had the guts to actually come to him and ask him yet. Or, or some people would be off, off here and they'd be, you know, talking bad about him or criticizing for something or, you know, going, how dare he do this or how dare he do that. And Jesus would know what they were talking about and he would go and speak into that and he would address that issue and he would talk to that um, without that particular thing having actually been voiced. And, and it's almost like we get a sense that, that perhaps this is what's going on here where they're, they're kind of like muttering away to each other and talking about, you know, uh, you know, oh, you know, only Jesus knew who he you know, Why is he associating with these people and blah, blah, blah? And, you know, why, why would he do such a thing? And Jesus comes and, and he tells these stories and he addresses this. Um, and all three of these stories that are recorded here, we have to kind of take into, uh, I guess, in the context that Jesus is addressing this issue here of why he associates with tax collectors and with notoriously sinful people, and with prostitutes, and with, you know, uh, whatever else. I don't know, we're not given too many specific details here, probably to, you know, save people's dignity and, and, and that sort of thing. But, but that's the question. That's the question that Jesus is addressing is, why spend time with these people? Why do they matter? Uh, and, and why, you know, kind of like, why are you hanging around with those people? And so Jesus tells these stories. He starts off with this one. It says, Jesus says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99, others in the, in the wilderness, and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? 
And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbours, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. Now, kind of, I guess farming is a little bit different in uh, Jesus' day as to what it is today. There's probably not too many sheep farmers that would only have 100 sheep these days. <laughs> but it was very much more kind of hands-on and, you know, it wasn't like fenced-off properties with nice, neat boundaries and things that um, we often see. But they, the guys, well, they would just wander around and, and find grass and then they'd go, oh, they've eaten all the grass here, let's go find some more somewhere else. And so there would be all this kind of, it was very sort of migratory and, you know, they would probably have their regular sort of patches that they would come back to in areas so that they weren't fighting with, you know, that other sheep farmer from across the road um, and things like that. But, you know, they, they, they would be out there for days or, or weeks out there because um, often they would have to go sort of far away from the, the fold or that sort of thing and they would look after them and protect them and, and things like that. But they weren't watching them 24-7. I reckon being a shepherd was at times a pretty boring job sitting around in the field and, you know, uh, David had plenty of time when he was a young man to, to write lots of songs. Now, he, was, he was making productive use of his time when he wasn't fighting the lions and bears, he was writing songs and, but he was, a lot of the time it was just like the sheep are eating, we're all good, what am I going to do for the next, you know, six hours or <laughs> something and I imagine they probably snoozed and they probably you know, did all sorts of things and, and, and prayed and chatted with each other and I don't know what they did. Um, but it's kind of like he, he's, he's going, all right, we're moving on, I better do a quick head count, you know, like you do when you, you, your parents or your school teachers and you're like, you're going, you've got the kids on an excursion and we're about to go on the bus and quick head count, have I got everybody? Yep, 98, 99, oh, we're missing one. We're missing, what's, what's the name of the, the one in the Lost Sheep book, the one that gets lost? Cecil, ah, Cecil the Lost Sheep, that's right. Cecil's missing, where's Cecil? Uh, and so he goes and, and he goes and he hunts and he finds because he cares about this sheep. And then Jesus tells another story. And he says, in the same way, verse 8, he tells the next story. And he says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Now, this was an interesting one because there's a couple of different schools of thought about what Jesus is talking about here or what the coins are. Now, um, one school of thought is that she's a fairly poor person, maybe a, a, a widow or something, and she doesn't have a lot of money. So one coin out of her 10 coins is a fairly significant amount to lose when you know it's got to be here somewhere. Um, I, I, I'm not sure how I'd go at um, taking like a 10% pay cut or you know giving up 10% of my, my assets and, and stuff. I think that would hurt a little bit. Um, and, uh, and so that, that's one possible scenario. There's, there's another suggestion though that says that uh, in the days of Jesus... There, have you ever seen pictures of like Middle Eastern or, or Hebrew kind of women who are getting married and they kind of have those, the headdresses with the little coins? And so there's some suggestion that maybe, uh, I, I couldn't find a lot of information about this, but there's a, 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 a significant school of thought that says that maybe this was one of the coins that was attached to her wedding headdress. And so it was more than just financial value that she was losing. It was, this was something that was sentimental 
This was something that was precious because it had emotional connections, that it was, you know, part of the, the symbol of um, her, her, her wedding or, or her marriage and that sort of thing. But whatever is the case, we know that this was valuable to her and precious to her. And Jesus says, won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. Does that mean that the other coins weren't valuable? (laughs) No, it doesn't. But it means something I thought was lost, something I thought had gone is back and so I'm rejoicing and Jesus says in the same way there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents and when we lose something that's precious to us don't we don't we do everything we can to find that I remember it wasn't too long ago um, it might have been Hannah's birthday in April. She got a pair of iPods, oh, Air- AirPods. I've got to get the terminology right or I sound old. Uh, <laughs> I know that I'm getting this sense of judgment from over here when I get names of things wrong. <laughs> she got AirPods, you know, those wireless Apple headphone things, you know, that all the teenagers want. Um, and, uh, and that was, she was really excited, you know, and it wasn't too long. How, how long was it? What do you reckon? Maybe a week? It was like the next day. It was like she'd lost one of them and she could not find it. And it's like, and these, these things aren't, this is not like a $20 pair of headphones. These are like 250 bucks, all right? So this is, this is you know, a significant loss. And they were quite precious to her, not only because they were new, but because like she valued them. And she, we turned that house upside down, didn't we? We searched everywhere. We were searching in places that you would not think they could possibly have ever got to. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, you're checking in the freezer, you know. <laughs> now, sometimes I find my keys in the freezer, but that's another story. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we turned the whole house upside down. She was stressing out. She was in tears. She was upset. She was like... You know, I only just got these and, and they're lost. And eventually we, we found them. They'd fallen down between the, the two sections of the modular couch. And it wasn't until I like lifted up my bit of the couch and pulled the couch apart and we found it. And, uh, and there was rejoicing. <laughs> but when, when, you know, when we lose something that's precious to us, it upsets us, doesn't it? And we start to go, you know, I've got to find this. It's got to be here somewhere. I, I remember one time when um, my parents had given us some cash uh, for, you know, as a Christmas gift and we put it in a card and uh, it was, a, I don't know, a few weeks later and we went to go and, and spend that money on something and it was just gone. Like, we couldn't find it anywhere and eventually we found it in the filing cabinet filed under C for Christmas. So, <laughs> perfectly logical. <laughs> But that was a, probably about 18 months later, I reckon, when we actually found that. It was quite a pleasant uh, moment when you, you know, you find money in your pocket that you'd forgotten about. Ooh, you know, a little bonus. But this is, I, I think this is one of the things that Jesus is saying. And, it, and, and the point of some of these stories is that he's saying, I'm hanging out with these people because they are precious to God. You know, it doesn't matter what other people think of you, you are precious to God. 
It doesn't matter what mistakes you've made. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far away from God you've been. You are precious to God and He wants you. And that is a powerful thing. And that is something that we need to get in here. And we need to, and, and for some of us, this is harder than others. And we've been talking about this as we've been talking about understanding God's love and, and how much He loves us and how, uh, how, how deep and wide and, and high and long and, you know, His love is for us. But this is something that, you know, we've got to have this revelation. And as, as we read and as we see, like, you are precious to God. You are, you are the treasure in the field, you know, that the, the guy comes across and, and discovers and goes and, and gives up everything that's of value to him in order that he might purchase the field and the treasure that's in it. You're the treasure. You know, God, God gave up the glory that he had in heaven and he came to earth and he gave up his life in order that he could be uh, you know, reconciled and, and in relationship with you and have that treasure. So in the first two stories, the, the thing that's lost wasn't by choice, was it? You know, the coin didn't choose to get lost or fall down behind that cabinet or between the couch, you know. Uh, it it kind of just happened. Even the, even the sheep, we might say, well, you know, sheep are stupid. Well, yeah, sometimes they are, but I don't think that normally normal sheep, now some of us don't feel like normal sheep all the time, but normal sheep don't set out to go and get themselves stuck in a gorge somewhere or trapped in a prickle bush or they're just wandering around looking for a good time and a bit of juicy grass, you know. They, they don't set out to go and get into trouble, do they? Uh, he just kind of wandered off and it was like an accidental thing. Who knows what happened? We don't know. But then in the next story, it's, it's a little bit different, isn't it? In the next story, is the story of the lost son. And, and, and Luke goes on in verse uh, 11, he says, To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. Now, you've got to remember this is a story about two sons, isn't it? Not just one. So the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now some commentators and, and preachers have suggested that what the son was really saying is, I wish you were dead. Now, because essentially what he's saying is, I don't want to wait until you die to get my inheritance, because normally that's when you get your inheritance, isn't it? When, when your, your, your parents have passed away and things get passed down in the family and, and that sort of thing. Now, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I can kind of imagine scenarios where perhaps he's a little bit more... Um, you know, re- remember, this is a good father. This is not a bad father. This is not an abusive father or anything like that. Maybe it was a little bit more like this kind of scenario. Dad, I don't want to be a farmer anymore. I got I got bigger dreams, you know. I'm I'm destined for greater things. You know, I want to travel and see the world. Farming might be alright for you, but I just don't want to be stuck here. I don't want to take over the family business. I don't want to kind of you know have my whole life planned out for me before I've been able to explore or do any of the things that I want to do. 
I just need some, I just need some cash to go and do all the things that I want to do. GoFundMe hasn't been invented yet. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so, you know, can I have my inheritance? You know, it's going to be mine someday anyway. Let's just kind of, you know, skip some of the, the process and get it to now. You know, I, I love you, Dad. I just don't want, to, don't want to be here doing your thing anymore. That's your life, not mine. Doesn't sound too implausible, does it? I'm sure that probably some of us have experienced conversations like that from some perspective at some point. I remember um, uh, Aunt Sylvania, uh, we used to have a little CD with uh, the story, this kind of the, the, the story told through the lens of, you know, ants in an ant colony and, and Sunrise did a, a play that our kids were part of and, and Anthony, the, the son, you know, he just sings ho- this whole song about how he just wants to, gr- you know, go and make his fame and fortune and be rich and famous, you know, and have all the world bow down at his feet. You know, he's got these dreams of, of grandeur, you know, and, and being stuck here on the, on the farm is just holding him back. But this whole idea, we were talking about this at, at men's group the other night, this idea of, you know, I don't want to do it your way, I want to do it my way, I can make it on my own, I don't need anybody's help, you know, I've got better ideas and better plans than what my father has for me, is, is really kind of, when you, you boil down, it's kind of the core essence of what sin really is, isn't it? I don't want to do things God's way in my life, I want to do things my way. I want to call the shots. I want to, you know, and, and we couch it in all kinds of very reasonable sounding explanations and, and terminology. You know, I just need to learn for myself. I want to make my own mistakes and have the opportunity to do that. And, you know, and, and the father's heart, you can imagine, is, is breaking. You know, and he, he knows, he, he can see where this is going a mile away. <laughs> you know, um, uh, age does often come with wisdom, at least for some of us, and in some ways. But um, <laughs> and, and as a father, I, I look at that and I, I try to put myself in his shoes. I mean, you know, it's, it's not that long ago that you know I could have put myself easily in the son's shoes and gone. You know, I want to make my own way in the world and find my own feet and make my own friends and do my own thing. But I, as a father now, I look at that too, and I can kind of put myself in the the father's shoes and go I wonder how I would feel and how I would react if one of my kids came to me and and said something along those lines but you know as we know the baby of the family always gets away with everything (laughs) and and the youngest always you know gets the the softest treatment and the the most the most uh, leeway with everything and uh, so the father acquiesces to this, this request from the son. And uh, as the youngest son, he would have been entitled to about a third of everything that the father owned. Can you imagine what that would be like to, to liquidate, uh, if you like, or to try to come up with um, cash equivalent to a third of every asset, every, you know, every, everything that you own? It would be a not insignificant amount of money, particularly for what sounds like a relatively wealthy man. He's got servants, he's got a, a, a business and, and property and land and farming and, and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't even know how, 
how he comes up with it, yeah, how, how uh, realistic it is to kind of think you can come up with that in cash. But that, that's how the story goes. So he acquiesces and, and gives the son this big wad of cash. And, uh, and the, the story goes on. It says, a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. Going to get as far away as possible. <laughs> kind of get that impression, don't you? Uh, And there he wasted all his money in wild living. And we think, what a foolish boy. And yet when we get big wads of money, you know, it tends to burn a hole in our pockets, doesn't it? You know, you look at people who win the lotto and generally it lasts about 12 to 24 months and they're right back where they started. Money burns a hole in our pocket. When it's, when, you know, it, it, it's the easy come, easy go thing, isn't it? You know, when we haven't had to work for something, we don't value it the same, do we? And so he wastes it all. He, you know, he's, all, his, all his dreams and all the things that he probably told his dad and probably was telling himself and convincing himself about what he was going to do with this money, pff, up in smoke. So it says, about the time that his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. This is the point in the story where everybody goes, Aww, he's all alone. Nobody cares about him anymore. (laughs) But, I, you know, this would be a very unfamiliar position for this entitled younger son who's been splashing cash on, on food and women and, and fast cars and, you know, well, maybe not fast horses, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I'm making it relevant to the 21st century. <laughs> All the things that us blokes would probably spend our money on. Um, uh, and, and now his, his money's run out and he finds himself in a position where not only does he have to work, but he has to work in a pretty smelly, uh, menial kind of job because that's all he can get. You know, there's not a lot going around. There's, there's not a lot of prosperity in the nation. There's a famine. And, and jobs are hard to come by. We don't we know that when there's drought and where there's hardship and when businesses aren't doing well, they're not hiring people. You know, and so he takes this job because it's the only one that he can find. And he's so hungry, he says, even the pig food looked pretty good. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. Here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and I'll say, he's, pra- he's practicing the speech. He says, oh, this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to work it out. You know, when you've got a really hard confrontation, a hard kind of thing to do, you've got to practice it in your mind, don't you? This is what I'm going to say. Got to get my words out right. He says, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. I thought my kids were melodramatic. Gosh. (laughs) 
So he returned home to his father. It does sound a bit melodramatic, doesn't it? It's like, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, I don't, I don't know what was going through his mind. You know, was, was, he, was he truly repentant? Like, was, did he really regret his action? Was he, had he really changed that much or was he just hungry? Yeah, you know, probably a bit of both, I think. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I, I think, you know, definitely hunger drives people to do things, but, but this was obviously the last thing that he wanted to do, was to go crawling back to Dad and, and you know, back to the family and go, I've failed. How many of us know, particularly, uh, I mean, I don't know, it, it's never easy to admit that you're wrong, is it? It is never easy to go, I had all these grounds, particularly when you've talked yourself up. <laughs> do you know, you, you remember it wasn't that long ago that he was like, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to invest and I'm going to, you know, have good, you know, uh, uh, we've got this, you know, great idea of how I'm going to make all this money and, you know, and, and now he's kind of at this point where he's going to come back and he's going to eat a bit of humble pie. And he's going to come back and go, do you know what, I was actually wrong and and I failed and you know I thought I could do it but I can't so he returned home to his father now I don't know what kind of response he expected I don't know what kind of uh what what he expected his his dad to say to him or how he expected his dad to respond to his little speech but I'm pretty sure that he probably wasn't expecting this because while he was still a long way off his father saw him coming what does that say to you he was watching he was waiting you can imagine it can't you every day father would be out there and he'd be He'd be doing his chores or, you know, he'd be heading off for the the day's work and he'd be looking down that road and he was watching and he was waiting. And filled with love, it says, and compassion, he ran to his son. He embraced him and kissed him in spite of the pig smell. (laughs) This is a guy who can't even afford food. I don't think he could afford a motel to, like, wash and put on a change of clean clothes he couldn't afford a change of clean clothes he couldn't even afford a loaf of bread he smelled like pigs his clothes were probably dirty and had holes in them he probably looked like a a, a beggar you know he'd been living on the street who knows he, he was in a faraway land how did he get back he wasn't catching a bus he'd probably been on the road living rough for for weeks maybe But his father doesn't see any of that. His father says, My son, who is precious to me and was lost, is now found. And there is joy. There is delight. And his son gives him starts to give him the practiced speech. You know, he's like, I've I've sinned against you and heaven and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son and he doesn't even get to finish his speech does he dad's not having any of that he's like what are you talking about quick 
bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger. You see, he doesn't even get to the bit about, you know, just being a servant. Right? He's it, it's, it's like, you know what it's like when sometimes you've got this whole rehearsed speech and the person just won't let you get it out? You're like, just let me get this speech out. I've practiced this and it's, yeah. Maybe that's just in the movies, I don't know. Um, but Father says, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. Who doesn't love a feast? But part of, you know, I, was, I was thinking about this and, and there's, I was listening to some, um, to, to some sermons about this passage of Scripture and there's you know, all kinds of uh, symbology and meaning behind the, the robe and the shoes and the, the ring. The ring was a symbol of the authority of the sun. It was kind of like, you know, the, the, when they used to stamp the things in the, the ring in the, the wax, what do you call that? A signet ring, a seal. Um, and that was, the, that was the symbol that you had authority to, to, to make decisions or, or spend money or all that kind of stuff. And, and, and when, while well, he's prepared to sort of come back and be nothing more than a, than a servant in the father's house, the father says, no, 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 no. And he restores the, the, the rights and authority of sonship on his son. But I think part of it too, for me, as I was looking at this and going, you know, what, the, the robe and the shoes, are, and part of that for me is about restoring dignity. And thinking that this guy's probably, you know, wearing clothes that stink to high heaven and, and uh, you know, he's, he's been sleeping rough, so there's probably holes in things where he's, he's worn them out or he's caught them on bushes as he's walking or, you know, his shoes are probably worn out and, and filthy and... And, and covered in all the stuff that gets left on roads that are traversed by animals and horses and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, and, and, and the Father's like, you know, we need to restore you. He restores his dignity. He puts a clean, nice robe and, and fresh shoes and, and puts that, that ring, that seal of his a sonship back on his finger. Jesus is all about restoring people. He's all about restoring dignity. He's all about restoring people back into relationship. He wants sons and daughters. And he wants to bless you. And this is such a great symbol of the Father's love is that he, he, just, he just wants to bless this, this kid who you know, took a third of everything he owned and went off and blew it all and wasted it on, on nothing, on, on sinfulness basically and, and wasteful living. And he comes and he says, he, he's back and the, his first instinct is not to tell him off. His first instinct is not to chide him or rebuke him. His first instinct is not to do the I told you so sort of thing. You know, his first instinct is to bless and to restore his son. What a great picture of our Father in heaven. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. 
your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. You can see his face, can't you? <laughs> what? The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, <laughs> your son, not my brother, he's your son, <laughs> comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. How did he know that's what he was doing? (laughs) Well, maybe. (laughs) I suspect that there's probably a little bit of, um, you know, it's like a good story. You know, it's it's the embellishment. I don't know, He's, he's speculating. But he's angry, isn't he? You know, I found it really interesting when I was thinking about, we, we talk a lot about how the father responded to the younger son. When the younger son came back, how did the father respond to him? How does the father respond to the older son? His father said to him, Look, my dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. This good father responds to the older brother with the same kind of kindness, the same patience, the same generosity, the same desire to bless as he did with the younger son. It's not a lot of difference, is there? Now, at times, religious people can be a bit judgy, can't they? <laughs> I don't know if you've ever met some judgy religious people. <laughs> Nobody here, obviously. <laughs> but some judgy religious people who are a little bit like this older brother. And, uh, you know, and you kind of just get the sense they just think that they're a little bit better than everybody else and it's a little bit superior and they've always done the right things and and they're more deserving of God's attention and God's blessings and and, and it's not too hard to draw some connections um, between those people and this older brother now It says very clearly that he's angry. Why is he angry? Is he angry that his dad killed the fattened calf? Or is he angry because his dad forgave? Maybe he's angry with his brother for abandoning the family and he hasn't let go of it. Now you can imagine, you know, the older brother now, like he's he's got no choice now someone's got to take over the family business and the younger brother's nicked off and said he's not doing it and so now the older brother's kind of in that position of 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 obligation he's like um maybe he was upset 
at the younger brother for the grief that he caused to his father. Sometimes we get angry at people when we see them hurt others, don't we? And even though that person who got hurt might forgive that other person and be restored with that person, sometimes we can still hang on to a little bit of that anger and a little bit of that unforgiveness like we talked about last week because they hurt that person that I care about. They, they caused grief to a person that I love and I'm not sure if I'm ready to forgive them yet. Now, I can still sometimes be a little bit angry. Maybe that's what was going on. He's a dutiful son. He probably loved his dad. And when he saw the, the grief that his younger brother caused, I, it's not hard to see, is it, that he might have been angry with his brother for behaving in such a selfish way, an irresponsible way. Maybe he's jealous of the attention that the father gives to the younger son and we certainly see some things that maybe hint or suggest at that, you know, when he talks about, you know, you never even gave me anything to have a party with my friends. You know, now here you are, you know, throwing, you know, throwing this giant feast and party and killing the, the, the special fatted calf, you know, that we've been saving up and fattening up for, a, you know, a really special occasion and you go and blow it on that loser. You know? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It seemed to fit. But whatever's going on, you know, we, we can see this parallel between the Pharisees who are talking to Jesus. And as we come back to that question that we asked and the comments that were being made right at the start, why are you hanging out with those people? You know, we, it's not too hard to draw some parallels between the people who are making comments like this and the older brother. The ones who feel like they've been the faithful ones, they're not the, they're not the sinners, they're the righteous ones. Surely God should give us more attention than those people who've been doing the wrong thing for years and years and years. Why would God go and spend, you know, if Jesus is really God, why would he give attention to those people and not to us when we're the good ones? And, you know, the Father responds with compassion and with love and he, and he calls to the older brother just as much as he was waiting, just as much as he was calling and, and hoping for that younger brother to return. And he wants this, he, he wants his son to recognize just as he does the significance of what's just transpired. The significance of, of, of how precious it is when someone that you thought was out of your life and gone, that you love and care about, is back. Someone that you had no idea whether they were even alive, where they were living, what they were doing. And suddenly they're back and they're restored and they're in your house and you can look after them and you can watch over them and you can care for them again. He says, don't you understand? We had to do this. It was right to do this. It was right to celebrate this. You are precious to God. You are precious to Him. Wherever you are, however far away or however near you feel like God is to you right now, do not ever for one second doubt 
that you are precious to him. He loves you so much. But like that son, he gives you the freedom to choose. And many of us at different points have made choices that perhaps we look back on with regret. Or maybe we're not at the place yet of looking back on them with regret because we're still there. I don't know. But he gives us the freedom to choose and that's also an expression of his love for us. He says, I don't want you to just be a servant. I don't want you to be a prisoner in my house. You have the freedom to choose. That's what a loving father does, isn't it? A loving father doesn't keep his children prisoner and kidnap them and lock them in the basement or whatever. <laughs> he says, you've got, you got the freedom. If you want to be here, I'm going to love you and I'm going to bless you. But if you choose to go, I'll, I'll bless you on your way. But when we go, you know, he's, he's waiting. There's, there's this eagerness, this sense of watchfulness and, and desire for us to come back and to return. And he accepts us. You know, no, no matter what, what we've done, no matter um, what mistakes, no matter what choices we've made to go off and, and be disobedient or, you know, to kind of go do our own thing, go, oh, I can do it better, I don't need God's plan or, you know, and even as Christians we have moments where we do that, don't we? Don't, don't think this is just all about non-Christians, right? Okay, sometimes we're still sons of the Father and the, He was already a son before He chose to walk away, wasn't He? You know, sometimes sons walk away, sometimes daughters walk away. And when we come back and we're in a mess, he doesn't judge, he doesn't rebuke, doesn't chide or tell us off. He embraces us and he kisses us with our pig smell. And he loves us and he restores and he puts that that fresh, new, clean robe of righteousness on your shoulders and he puts that, that ring back on your finger that says you're back in with the authority of the Father. And clean shoes on your feet. And you're back in the family. I encourage you, let, let's pray. No matter who you are, no matter where you're at, we can always come back to him. Father, we thank you for your, your patience with us, your grace towards us, your love towards us. Lord, we, we may never understand the fullness of how much you love us. And sometimes the things that you do for us, the times that you bless us, even in, even in the middle of our, our, our failing and even when we're as low as we feel like we can possibly ever be, God, you pour out blessing after blessing after blessing on us, God. We thank you that you are an amazing and good God. And Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to have a, uh, I guess, a, a fresh understanding, a fresh conviction that nothing that happens can ever separate us from your love. Nothing we do, nothing anybody else does will ever stop you loving us. But Lord, sometimes we make choices, sometimes we walk away. Sometimes we, we uh, act in disobedience towards you, God. 
But Lord, we thank you too that your grace extends to those moments and that you are always ready to welcome us back. That even if we can't come all the way, Lord, when you see us coming, you, you run towards us like the Father in that story. That you cover some of that distance, that you long to, to, to do whatever you can to restore and, and, and to make things right. And James, your word says that if we draw near to you, that you draw near to us. You come out and you meet us and you restore us and you make us whole. And you bring us back in as, as sons and daughters, as heirs of your family. Father, we thank you for this amazing grace that you show to us. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information or to listen to other podcasts, head to our website at BethelCRC.org.au or check out Bethel Family Church on Facebook.